0: Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. Today we have with us Tiffany Alston, who's a drug and alcohol clinician. Tiffany, can you hear me and can you see me?
1: I can, I can.
0: Welcome, Tiffany, and how are you feeling today?
1: Good, thank you. I'm looking forward to talking about this topic. It's something that I'm quite passionate about, so it'll be a good conversation to have.
0: I'm looking forward to this too. So let's set the ball rolling. What is a drug and alcohol clinician?
1: So there are different types of drug and alcohol clinicians. Uh, I am specifically a drug and alcohol counsellor, which means that I offer therapeutic uh, intervention, um, which is generally just one-on-one counselling sessions um, on an ongoing basis for people that are suffering with substance use issues, um, which includes alcohol as well. Uh, you can have, normally we've got sort of teams, so we generally we'll have doctors on board, nurses on board, so that we can create a holistic approach and treatment.
0: So a a drug and alcohol clinician is a generic term for really anyone who's involved in the therapeutic management of patients with drug and alcohol uh, problems. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying.
0: Okay. And you're specifically a counselor. I am. What type of counseling do you do?
1: Well... It really does depend on the individual. Um, my approach, uh, and every clinician will be different, but my approach is being evidence-based therapy, uh, which at the moment, studies are showing that cognitive behavioural therapy is um, really a strong one in recovery and successful. Also, your motivational interviewing techniques um, and cha- a lot of ch- that involves a lot of change, talk, setting goals, realistic goals. Um, listening is a massive component of it as well. Sometimes people just need to be heard, um, and also creating a safe space where people can feel confident that they can be completely open and honest.
0: In a so way. CBT, motivational mm-hmm. interviewing, listening, and a safe space—those are the cores of, of the core features of what you do. Yes. So, next question what's the difference between CBT and motivational interviewing? And what what is CBT and what is motivational interviewing?
1: So CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And a lot of that is looking at, um, if you think of a triangle, you'll have your, you'll have the thoughts, then you'll have your behaviors, and then also the consequences of your behaviors. And that really links into your cognitions and your behaviours. So the thought and then how you might react to that thought, it might be an automatic thought, which really often happens with people that have emotional dysregulation, where they people find it really difficult to be able to not suddenly look at something to make them feel better, and they can't regulate and just calm themselves down naturally. And a lot of the time in my line of work is people will resort to substances to make them feel better, and that's the behaviour. So the automatic thought will rise, that will then lead to a, and that will create an emotion and a feeling, and then to get rid of that feeling, they might then create a behavior and that could be really, create really negative consequences for their medical and mental health.
0: So what, in CBT, changing the cognition changes the behavior, which then changes the consequences. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes. So in CBT, we focus on cognitive reframing, which is when you have that thought and then we challenge that thought. And a lot of the time, um, an example might be the automatic thought is um, you're not good enough. And that thought then leads to sadness, feeling sad and incompetent. And that feeling of sadness um, is what triggers that Need to get rid of it. You just think, no, I can't handle this. Therefore, you use the substance to get rid of that feeling because that feeling is really uncomfortable. So, when we're cognitive reframing, we're looking at challenging that. So, if the automatic thought is, I'm not good enough, then a question that I might ask one of my clients is, Where's the proof in that? Because a lot of the time, there isn't any proof and it's something that we've created within ourselves that's leading to feeling a certain way. And a lot of the time, that feeling and that belief has come from a past experience where someone or, or an event that has reinforced that you are not good enough and that has stopped. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at cognitive reframing, we're looking at challenging those thoughts, those automatic thoughts, even just identifying them is the first stage. Identifying and writing them down and then trying to delay the behavior.
0: So you've just triggered in me two words, well, three words self-esteem and trauma what what does that say to you
1: absolutely <coughs> and trauma are massive components or can be massive components of working with people with substance use issues um and just generally in mental health a lot of the time we see people that have substance use issues also have mental health issues and we call them comorbidities mm-hmm. um so which we'll probably touch on a little bit later, but when we're looking at trauma and self-esteem, a lot of the time the trauma is what's triggered this um, inability to develop skills to emotionally regulate ourselves because sometimes that's not having a a certain role model to be able to teach you those things Um, or it could be someone you know, trying a substance use, substance at a very early age and they've realised, oh, this makes me feel great, why wouldn't I do this really often? Especially in childhood is a lot of where things need unpacking to link, in, to link why this person uses those substance use and where these automatic thoughts have developed from and um, how that plays into their substance use. And I think a really important part of that as well is, um, creating a safe space for someone to be able to open up about their childhood can can take a while. be quite difficult as well if they've got a lot of low self-esteem. Um, it's just about listening to start with to make sure that they feel like they can trust you. And then you discuss the trauma. The other thing with trauma is if you're, you know, studies have shown that brain development i think it's bumped up from 25 to 26 our prefrontal cortex um is fully developed at that age so if we're learning or if we're if we're not learning how to uh regulate ourselves at a young age and all of a sudden we realize oh this makes me feel good and my prefrontal cortex is understanding ramifications and identifying risks associated with our behaviors so if that's not fully developed and we condition our brain to understand if I feel a certain way and I take this certain drug and I feel good, why wouldn't you do that again? And then that creates a brain pattern and a dependency.
0: That's an interesting point that you've said, that the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the, the, the intelligent brain, is not developed until you're 25, 26 years old.
1: Yes, yes. So yet, um,
0: The criminal I guess- justice system says basically you're an adult when you're 18.
1: Isn't that interesting? Yes, mm. and and it's. I believe that the 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 study behind that at eighteen is that our that part of our brain to say no, what to be able to manage the risk around alcohol and maybe cigarettes and certain things is you know developed. But it, it, that's a very controversial topic because then you also you look at different countries. You look at America and the the age of legal of, of being able to drink legally is twenty one. Mm.
0: So, so, I mean, you know, you can die for your country, you can enroll in the army uh, at the age of 18, and I think in the, the British you can enroll at 16, uh, but you can't in the States buy a drink till 21, but you're not an adult until you're 26. You know, there, there, there's uh, there's a mismatch there, isn't there?
1: Absolutely, there's a lot that's, I guess you would say, fundamentally questionable about, about those ages, and yeah. especially if If you've had a traumatic experience as well, that can also, it can stunt the development of the brain on a physiological level. So if that's also stunted, then your brain's not going to be fully developed at 26. It could take longer or it could actually be stunted.
0: You've seen people who experience trauma. You've seen people who have been stunted. What does that look like?
1: It looks like someone who is really confused. Because a lot of the time, a lot of the time, people that come into my office or into the, into the service that I work with, they have no idea about you know the the science behind the brain and why why they have addictions. Some people truly think that they they there's something wrong with them and that they're broken, and that is horrible to see. But it's also an opportunity for me to be able to educate them. and and allow a space for understanding of why, why they came to be where they are today.
0: So this is an interesting point. So the difference between addiction being seen as a moral failure versus a chronic brain disease, how would you comment on that?
1: So absolutely, addiction, no matter what addiction it is, the term addiction, um, but the science says and it's confirmed that it is a chronic brain disease that affects both our mental health and our physical health and behaviors as well.
0: So when people say that, 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 that addiction is a is, is, is bad and they broaden on themselves and we need to lock them up and throw away the key, what would be your response to that?
1: I would say it's interesting because I that's something that I'm really passionate about is that a lot of people that don't understand addiction unfortunately have the belief or make this, they make assumptions around people have the choice to use and not to use, whereas mm. whereas we know that no one chooses to have cancer, no one chooses yeah. to have diabetes, um, yeah. and it is a disease. Our body is yeah. at disease.
0: And I think one of the important points to make is when, when addiction is established, people don't have a choice as to whether or not they use. They, ha- they are compelled to use. There is a compulsion there.
1: Absolutely, and that's on a, And you're absolutely right. And that's on on a, on a brain level, brain activity. That's that that stimuli that we were talking about. That the reward system of our brain, and we rely our bodies rely on that. We condition our brain to be, we truly believe that in order to feel better, we have to use this substance. Because when we feel these emotions, what happens is generally our um, our our I guess. What we would call it is our body um, taps into a sympathetic nervous system, whereas, which is a fight or flight. I'm not sure if your listeners have heard of that before, where our body tenses yeah, up. What
0: about the flight or flight?
1: wow uh, it's when our body tenses up and it creates um, a little bit of a faster heartbeat. It might, might be where you feel stressed or maybe if people have experienced um, a car bingle or, you know, something's happened that's made them really quite anxious quite suddenly. That feeling is generally very uncomfortable no one no one enjoys being in that feeling and neither does our body our body tries to stay at a state of homeostasis which is a balance so this, when we're tapped into our sympathetic nervous system what happens is our brain goes how can i get rid of this feeling and if you've learned and taught your brain in order to survive this feeling and get rid of it i use substances And you continue to practice that behavior, you are teaching and conditioning your brain that in order to survive this feeling, you have to use that substance because you haven't developed those healthy coping mechanisms, such as going for walks or breathing techniques, meditation. So, if we teach our brain that, there's no choice in the matter because we've conditioned our brain to think that way. Just like we've conditioned our brain, you can go to sleep, for instance, without brushing your teeth, it feels uncomfortable. Mm. We have we brush our teeth. We go to sleep. We eat at nighttime. Those simple conditions are the, are quite similar to the need to get rid of a certain feeling, and yeah. I think that that's really important for people to understand because there's no choice in that. That is that is something that you have conditioned your brain to think. Therefore, we're lucky though that we can train our brain to unthink that, and that's a really big part of therapy as well.
0: So that's all about the compulsion to use. It's an irresistible yeah. urge, basically. And, and we need to teach people that how to overcome that compulsion. So you, you, you've talked a little bit about CBT, and we've got the idea that there are cognitions that lead to behaviors that lead to consequences. And if you change the cognition, you change the behavior, and then you change the consequence. You also mentioned, however, that one of the techniques you used is, is, is motivational interviewing.
1: Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. Well, my cat is absolutely loving this conversation, and she's wanting to. <laughs> so we'll just pop her away for now. She, um, she, she loves these things. Do you things. think she's motivational like, what-
0: interviewing works for cats?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, so the motivational interviewing is a lot of change talk. So at the start of motivational interviewing, we determine what stage of change a client might be at. So um, a stage of change is a Prochaska and DiClemente study. They created it um, and it's a concept where you will have a pre-contemplation stage, which is where someone might you know, mum might have said, I think, you know, you might have a little bit of an issue here. Would you like to get it sorted out? And the the person that uses substances might go, mm, no, nah, it's all good. Like I could stop if I needed to. I could stop if I wanted to. I've
0: heard that phrase a lot. I can yeah. stop
1: if I wanted to. <laughs> no, but like I mean. How do you deal hard. with that? So it really is just about um, helping them understand if that's actually the case. So okay, so if you're saying that maybe you know if that's something that you might be able to do, um, how would you feel about giving that a go? Um, or what what is the difference? It's, it's asking those open ended questions where they can't say yes or no. So looking at um, you know how do you feel about how do you feel about the idea of stopping? What would that look like? what is your confidence level on you know the fact that you could do that and they're, they're generally like yeah no I got this like it'll be fine you know but I don't need to stop because I know I can so that yeah. and, and you can run in circles and that can be quite um, it's it's a very tug-of-war kind of conversation yes. um, and then after a few sessions uh, with a client that's pre contemplative if they're not if they're just generally not ready um, then you would you would you would have that conversation with them and you would ask for them to maybe you um, if you know you, you you acknowledge that that's where they feel like they're at as well, so you're not dis- discounting that um, that's their belief, and you're not saying that they're wrong in any way. Who am I to say that that person can't control their substance use? Um, but if they're not willing to put in a bit of the work, I think that's where you you say, okay, well that's fine. Like if you feel like you can control it, then that's okay. And then, because wherever I'm, I, I'm a voluntary, generally a voluntary clinician. So, hmm. clients that come to see me want to change. They've, have kind of, I been able to identify that they've got an issue and they're coming in because they they want to help with that, with changing.
0: So that's a very challenging phrase, isn't it? I don't, I don't need, to, I, I I don't have a problem because I can quit whenever I like. Uh, I you know I don't need to quit because I can quit any time. Hmm. So. How many of your clients do you think stay in that phase more more than you would hope?
1: Um, there are a small component of clients that I see that are forensic clients, which means that they're mandated to come to treatment. So they have to, to complete a certain order. You would yeah. see a lot of that in those, in that clientele as opposed to the voluntary clients. So- um Yeah, so not not a lot. It normally takes maybe a couple of sessions to create identifying factors around or triggers around, oh, maybe I actually do have a bit of a problem with this.
0: So after about two sessions, you can normally get through to somebody that, look, actually, there is a problem and you need help. Is that that what you're saying? It
1: really depends. But generally, if someone's come in voluntarily, there's a part of them that's out of drug and alcohol service part of them that believes they need a little bit of help and I would use that. I would say, okay, so if you felt like you you can control it, which is great, um, mm. why did you feel the need to come into the service? And that's generally the question where they go, oh, well, I thought this, or they say, oh, well, my family member brought me and that I'm kind of forced to come here. And that's when yes. you determine treatment because there's no, you can't help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. Right. So you would discuss the closure of a treatment around that area because they're not there for them, they're there for
0: someone else. So what, so, what would you say to family members who say, oh, look, my, my loved one, my son, my spouse, uh, my daughter, they've got a substance use disorder. I'm going to drag them in by their ear hole into a drug and alcohol service and you know, they're going to be fixed. What, what would you say to that, to, that, to that person, that concerned relative?
1: The very first thing I would say is I'm, I'm so sorry that you're, you're having to go through this right now and it's a really, really challenging situation because it is. I, I think being a family member or a loved one who cares for someone with substance use and that probably doesn't have a heap of an understanding um, or they might have done a heap of research and thought this is where we need to go, it's so difficult to have to say to someone, unfortunately we can't help your child or your person or your spouse or your partner or because it's voluntary, they need to want to change in order for us to help them. some parents get quite frustrated with that, which I can completely understand. Some people get angry. Um, you know, everyone's going to respond in different ways. For me, it's just about reiterating that this is what you can do in the meantime, um, letting them know, you know, some safety tips, some harm reduction, um, giving them, with, there's lots of services out there that are fam- like, for, specifically for family members mm-hmm. to get support as well. So just, Educating them on what addiction is, as well, like we spoke about earlier, um, and giving them advice around this is what you can do. However, you can't. There's no. There's no point in bringing someone in if they're doing it for you, because in the long run, it's if if they're not doing it for themselves, they're not going to be open to changing.
0: So you, I've just triggered there, you, you've, you've made me think about the concept of rock bottom. And how does rock bottom relate to readiness for change, do you think?
1: It's a good question because a client or a person that I'm seeing that has substance use issues may not identify that they're rock bottom, yet a family mm-hmm. member might. So nice. uh, and that's... And therein mim- lies
0: the pre-contemplation.
1: Absolutely, and yeah. and it's really, really frightening. Really frightening for the people that are caring for that person to see yeah. them reach what they think is rock bottom. When a client reaches their uh, perception of rock bottom, a lot of the time that's when they're in the hospital or um, their mental health is deteriorated, where where they might be thinking yeah. about or acting upon suicidal thoughts, uh, and they it, it 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 scares them enough to think, okay, hold on what am I doing? How can I get help?
0: So what's the next stage of change?
1: So the next stage of change, um, so we move from pre-contemplation to contemplation, which is Mm. mm, I might have a bit of an issue here. Not really sure if what I'm going to do about it, but, yeah, okay, I I think maybe this is something that I need to get looked at. Mm. So and and a lot of that... Yeah, a lot of that a lot of that area is around helping them identify what they actually feel like they need. So, what is it that you need? What would um what is it that you feel like there's it is a problem? So, you might have a client that uses multiple substances and we call that polysubstance use, but they only identify that maybe their alcohol is the issue and they just want to change the alcohol, and that's perfectly fine. I will work on them. With just looking at if they want to reduce their alcohol consumption, I'll look at that as well as creating education and harm reduction around the other substances they're using and how they all um, link together and what they can do to the different parts of your brain and things like that as well.
0: So a, a large part of therapy for addiction involves educating the patient and their their carers, their relatives. About the harms associated with uh, addiction—is that what you're saying?
1: Absolutely, that's a massive component um, of the framework that I work under, which is harm reduction. Yeah. Because um, I think that if you're going to use, let me help you use safely. Let mm-hmm. me help you do it safely whilst we work on reducing your substance use, because it's really difficult and unrealistic for anyone to assume or ask someone who has that brain condition to just be able to stop substances just and it's dangerous on a medical on a medical level it is extremely dangerous for someone to suddenly stop any substances called turkey
0: Hmm. so tell me about the harm reduction interventions you would advise for say alcohol so if someone was having trouble dealing with alcohol what would you say to them in terms of minimizing harm
1: well um i would look at what what they the first thing that I would look at is what's your realistic goals in reduction, and then we'd look at, uh, and, and when I say that, I mean the consumption. So let's say they're drinking a bottle and a half of wine a day, mm-hmm. uh, and I ask them what do you drink out of, and they say, you know, I drink out of a drink bottle. Let's just say they're drinking out of one of these, um, mm-hmm. which is a 1.25, which would be about a bottle and a half. They pour it in there and they drink out of that so that they can take it in public. Mm-hmm. Um my question would be, you know, why don't you buy a smaller drink bottle and fill that up? So yeah. smaller. Items. I'd also be educating them on eating, quite trying to eat before, during and after drinking. Also water, swapping out if you're drinking in glasses, every second glass is water. That also tricks our brain to think that we're drinking more and we get full. Mm-hmm. Um also recommending um, maybe certain vitamins that could help with um, memory uh, and brain function, such as thiamine. Mm-hmm. And I would also always get them to check in with their GP, make sure they've got uh, you know someone, a GP that's on board that understands drug and alcohol and also that is doing regular check-ins with this client. And also look at getting blood tests to see where their liver functions at um, to just make sure that that's okay, and if not, looking at interventions and treatment around that. Pretty much creating, um, like we said earlier, biopsychosocial from a treatment perspective. So biologically, what's happening with your body and your medical health and what can we look at to reduce the risk or the harm? Then looking at um, your psychological, looking at, okay, so if you're drinking, let's say you drink this amount and at this point you get to maybe after a bottle of wine you start feeling really sad and you start thinking about suicide how can we look at creating a safety plan around that and around that time who can you call writing down a safety plan making sure that the client has that safety plan in front of them has all of the numbers available and then a a social aspect so who can support you who is who can support you through this journey of reduction and harm, harm reduction, but also your substance use journey? Yeah. Who can we utilize as a team to help support you in managing the risks and reducing the harms associated with your drinking?
0: So that's a fabulous exposition of harm reduction within the um, uh, the, the contemplative phase. What's the next phase? <laughs>
1: So the next, um, the next phase is preparation. So that's when a client uh, is preparing for change. So looking at, um, there's there's a couple of different versions. You've got your preparation or your determination. And that's, I'd normally say preparation because it's looking at, so this, how can we prepare you best for this change? What can we put in place, um, you know, let's prepare you for making making goals a lot of the times is where goal setting comes in place so we might do what's a realistic goal and we use smart goals which is your specific goal measurable achievable um realistic and timely so a client might say i'm going to cut down from a bottle and a half a day i'm going to as of tomorrow only drink a glass of wine a day Mm. i would write on a I do a lot of whiteboard work and I'd write up on the whiteboard s-m-a-r-t and we'd go through the smart goal and what that helps why that's helpful is it helps the client identify that that goal is probably not realistic because that would be extremely difficult to go from having that amount of alcohol and those amount of chemicals going into your brain to such a a small amount and the cat's loving this (laughs) Um, and that that I guess would, would then, and and it really is about that talk around, it's okay to only create a tiny baby step goal because in their eyes that could be huge. And that could be a matter of going from a bottle and a half of wine to a day to a bottle and a quarter of wine a day. And that, that's where yeah. I would
0: start. So or, the Chinese have a saying that the longest journey starts with the smallest step. Absolutely. and uh, This is what you're saying basically. And then after that, what's the next phase?
1: Action phase. So that's when the client is actioning these changes. So they're in treatment, they're attending treatment, um, in that pre-contemplative and contemplative stage, they might sort of not turn up to a couple of sessions here and there because they're still one toe in, one toe out. Um, but action is they're ready to engage. They're, they're making these goals. They're achieving these goals. Um, when they come into sessions, we set new goals every week. We look at what worked, what didn't. We work through, um, okay, so if this didn't work, why didn't it work? what could we have done differently? And we unpack them. So, um, and then what kind of new goals should we set this week or for the next fortnight? Um, And we're monitoring, We're, we're monitoring these goals and and this client is achieving them.
0: Right. And then what's the next step? Relapse. Tell me about relapse.
1: So that's when that's that idea of two steps forward forward, one step back and a lot of the time relapse is relapse is something that is it's it's part of recovery it's really uncommon for people not to have and a relapse and a relapse, the the description of a relapse would be um, to return to the original problematic substance use. So, if someone was drinking a bottle of bottle and a half of wine a day, and through the action phase they were then drinking two glasses of wine a day, the relapse would mean that they returned back to a bottle and a half daily drinking. Yeah. You can also have lapses in recovery, and a lapse is just maybe one day where they went back to that or where they just drank a bottle of wine instead of two glasses of wine. But then the next day, they got back on top of their goals and they were drinking two glasses of wine a day. Um, And relapse and lapses in recovery are are really crucial parts of not saying that they need to happen, but when they do, they're a fantastic opportunity to work through why. Why and how. How can we prevent that from happening again and at this stage of of therapy. We're looking at what was the trigger and where did the trigger start a lot of people are under the impression or understanding that a trigger is something that happens immediately before the behavior whereas we can actually be triggered days on a psychological level days before we even act on the behavior.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize that a relapse is to be expected in addiction because addiction is a chronic relapsing disorder of the brain. So relapse is part of the disease process. And secondly, from a therapeutic point of view, it's an opportunity to discuss further care rather than an opportunity to chastise the individual. Because I think a lot of patients fear being judged because they're suffering from a relapse.
1: Absolutely. It's letting them know that just because this has happened doesn't mean they, a lot of clients think that they're back at square one or day one. It doesn't have to be the case. And and that pressure is not coming from anyone generally but themselves. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that that they don't feel like you're judging them or putting any pressure on them. And that's why you go through realistic goal setting as well, because Mm -hmm. the goals are, the clients come up with the goals. I just go okay so this is what your goal wants to be let's work that is it a smart goal and then yeah it is a smart goal great let's go with that so it is therapy therapy the way that i work is run by the client i'm there to put the stepping stones there but the client's jumping on them yeah so yeah
0: well that's great tiffany thank you for that exposition of the cycle of change and how it applies to addiction medicine so Tiffany, I'd really it's it's that we've run out of time now, but I really want to talk to more about how you engage with your clients. So we'd love to have you back on. But for the meantime, thank you so much for joining us on Medhead.
1: Thanks. It was an absolute pleasure to be on.
0: Thank you, Tiffany. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong. And if you liked the show, please subscribe by clicking on the button below. And I look forward to your joining us all again soon.